1: hey
0: guys this is justin in this episode of excess returns jack and i do a show us your portfolio with our good friend colin roach founder of orkin financial group and of discipline funds in the discussion we get valuable insights into how colin approaches the management of his personal portfolio and the strategies he uses to invest and compound his wealth over time as always thank you for listening please enjoy this discussion with colin roach hi colin thank you very much for joining us today hey guys how are you doing Good. You know, we usually have you on to talk macro related stuff. So you've come on and talked about the Fed, talked about inflation with you. And, you know, usually it's like top down type of discussion around the economy and sort of the inner workings of the economy. And those those discussions have been great. I know Jack and I have learned a tremendous amount from those, but we're going to go uh, a little bit different with you today. and We appreciate this. We're going to kind of come from the bottom up and we're going to talk about how you view and manage your own personal portfolio and your assets and sort of how you think about this from a philosophical standpoint. And then we'll sort of get into the actual portfolio and the process and the way that you think about, you know, long-term managing um, your own money and how you go about doing that. I know, and, you know, I know you work with a lot of investors day to day and do this and, you know, build investment strategies, but it's always fun and nice to hear a professional that has experience that maybe thinks about things differently and how you go about managing your your portfolio. So, so really appreciate you com- kind of coming on and, and sharing these details with us.
1: Yeah, you bet. It's my portfolio is probably pretty boring compared to most people. So, I'll try to we'll try to sec this up as much as we can. <laughs> uh,
0: well, boring doesn't always mean bad, but uh, you know sometimes boring can be really good over time. So, yeah. So, um, but you know where we like to start all these discussions, and, and probably this is how you, you start most of your discussions with people that you work with is you know, putting on more the the planner hat. And, you know, when you think about your goals with your personal portfolio and what you're trying to achieve with your investments, like how would you, how would you explain that? How would you capture that?
1: Yeah, I, I think starting from a, a real financial planning foundation, I think the, the key question for everybody is understanding, like Ken French said, that risk is uncertainty of consumption. And so as we navigate our financial lives, I think the thing that's really difficult for people to compartmentalize is the time horizons over which they're going to have certain assets. And that's to me, that's really become time has become sort of the essential aspect of managing all this, especially, you know, when I had kids, I think kids really screwed up the way that I think about all this stuff, because when you have kids, you you create a lot of short term burdens for yourself that you didn't previously have, but you also have to start thinking in this sort of like multi-generational perspective. It completely transforms your mentality from thinking solely about yourself and like your wife to thinking then about other people and their time horizons. And so now, you know, in a weird way, having kids kind of kicked me in the butt because it it motivated me in a way to start thinking about things in not just a sort of hyper-productive short-term time horizon, but also this weird sort of you know, unpredictable long time horizon, this multi-generational time horizon. So, you know, my, my goals essentially are to create certainty of consumption across various time horizons. And, you know, we can, we'll kind of get into how I actually build the, you know, the, or quantify the liabilities and then match certain assets to it across specific time horizons. But, you know, in a general sense, that's what I'm doing is looking at things in, very specific time horizons to try to optimize consumption over all of these time horizons, including time horizons that are incredibly unpredictable, where, you know, in the in the long term, my, my own retirement plan, perhaps, um, my demise, perhaps, you know, how my wife going to navigate my demise, and then how my children are going to navigate, you know, potentially inheriting some money or benefiting from what I can produce in my lifetime so that they can create greater predictability across their own consumption time horizons.
0: I'm curious, do you have any, I mean, I think that's a really great way to sort of look at it and frame it up, but do you have any like mental hacks that you, I mean, can suggest to help people sort of think, I mean, it sound, sounds obvious, like when you hear that, like, you know, framing out or looking at these different, you know, potential liabilities or ways that you're going to consume the assets in the future. Um, is it, you know, for a lot of people, could it be as simple as like maybe writing those down or what they see is, I'm sure they're like, if you think about college savings, saving for retirement, I mean, you know, case of emergencies, like you said, your, your, your demise or some type of emergency. So was there any things that you did that you think would be helpful for people listening that could help them think about it that way?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that a, a lot of people work on an asset allocation. What I would argue is sort of a, they kind of back into it in terms of they try to build the optimal i think collection of asset classes that will work together this is kind of the traditional modern portfolio theory or mean variance optimization approach where you you take the assets that will you know diversify a portfolio in the optimal way to generate the the optimal risk or return per unit of risk basically and and that's a fine approach but i think for a lot of people what that can do is it can create this sort of asset liability mismatch in their financial plan where, yeah, they have this theoretical optimal portfolio of collection of assets, but they may have created a mismatch relative to what their actual expenses are over time, what their actual consumption needs over time are. So I typically try to work at it from actually the opposite way. I start with calculating the liabilities that we can quantify. So, you know, looking at things like, what are my monthly expenses? What are my annual expenses likely to be? And then trying to predict out, you know, what are, my, what are my expenses likely to be across predictable time horizons? So inside of like two to three years, you know, you can predict if you need a house down payment inside of the next five years or your kids are going to college at a certain period. Like, these things are at least somewhat predictable. And you can start to kind of quantify these things over either monthly or annual time periods where then you can start to actually match the the assets from based on the liability. So you're working at all this backwards, basically, from like the way that a lot of us traditionally think of asset allocation, where you're actually starting with, okay, what are the simple, most boring cash-like instruments that are going to give me certainty to be able to, to consume what I need to over certain short time horizons? And then once you kind of you you kind of bucket those things out or, or quantify them and match the proper assets, especially over the, I mean, I've found for me and my clients, especially quantifying these things over like the, especially giving optimal certainty or a very, very high degree of certainty inside of like the next really like two to three years, that frees up a huge amount of behavioral bandwidth to take a lot more risk with everything else. So once you kind of, quantify a lot of that short-term stuff and bucket it out by essentially applying like cash or cash like instruments i mean today you know a lot of your short-term instruments can just be t-bills essentially that you're just rolling perpetually at five and a half percent that gives you so much certainty of your consumption across that part of your asset allocation that you can then you know kind of go buck wild in terms of thinking about okay the stock market now will fill some of a lot of my longer term time horizons. And I've got so much upfront certainty in the, the the short-term stuff here that, you know, that asset allocation, that part of my asset allocation, I can just sort of behaviorally compartmentalize and forget about. Just one more question before I hand it over to Jack here.
0: Um, you know, we all have children, I've, our kids are different ages, um, you know, calling your kids are younger than mine. So this kind of seems like a silly question asking this now, maybe at where, you know, we kind of all are in our lives, although in a couple of years, I'm going to be 50. So maybe for me, it's not that silly of a question. But um, how do you think about, do you ever think about retirement? I mean, do you, and, and if you do think about retirement, like, do you think, I mean, we're in a business where probably if we stay doing this, we'll all be able to work in the investment and, you know, advice, financial planning space for a long time because this isn't the, the, the type of job where we're breaking our back every day in terms of the physical aspect of it um but you know do you is that what you sort of do you see yourself like continuing to work as long as possible or do you think about retirement yeah, kind of differently it's,
1: yeah it's i mean it's it is easy for people in the financial services industry i think to say oh we'll never retire because we we perform a job that a lot of people actually try to start doing when they retire uh, a lot of people who retire will then get very, very interested in their finances, want to take on more of a DIY approach, which is totally understandable. But I don't know. I, I do think in general, I, I, you know, I'm generalizing to a large degree about all this, but I've never loved the idea. And I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always wanted to earn my own income, control my own income in large part, because I never loved the idea of the traditional work environment where you trade 40 years of your youth, essentially working hard for a corporation in exchange for, say, like 20, maybe 30 years of being old and fragile when you're retired. I just, I never loved that concept, but I feel like the more that I've, the older I've gotten, the more I've also realized that I really value working for people. Like, I really value, I I get an enormous amount of just, value out of producing things for other people and and feeling productive. I think that it that gives me a purpose that, you know, keeps me interested and motivated to to continue living. And I think, you know, that's actually something that I see with a lot of retirees that, you know, they'll retire at 65 and they really struggle especially with that like first 5 years of retirement because to some degree they've they've sort of given up their purpose and they they have to sort of I think, find another purpose again in life. And, you know, a lot of people have no trouble doing that, but I've seen people struggle with it. And I think that that's one thing to keep in mind, especially as people think about and navigate retirement, is that, yeah, you want to retire, but you also don't want to give up your purpose in life and feeling like you have a purpose here. And I think that a lot of people, I think, would benefit from transitioning either, you know, if you have sort of a traditional nine to five, as you get into retirement, you do want to think about, Transitioning into something where you you maybe still have a purpose. Maybe you're working part time. You're you know maybe you're doing charitable work. Whatever it is, I think people should should not give up on the idea that they can work when they're older. That they can still you know despite being old, you can still add value to other people's lives and feel like you really have a purpose. And so I think the the traditional sort of retirement view is you know, somewhat flawed in that sense, in that it it leads people to sort of give up their purpose at a specific time period in life. And I think people should sort of reconsider that in the sense that you can, you can technically, you know, retire, but you can also continue doing things that are meaningful and purposeful that, you know, either earn you an income or help other people in a way that, you know, give you a sense of purpose as you get older.
2: Yeah. You know, I think you've touched on like what one of the biggest mistakes people make is, which is everybody spends all this time planning the money part of retirement. You know, they do all the math and I have 4% rule or whatever they're going to do. And everything's set up. And then it's like day one of retirement. All right, what do I do now? And, you know, the biggest part, probably the part that will contribute the most to your happiness is not like dealt with at all. And, you know, people like there's only so much golf you can play. I mean, unless you're, you know, unless you're really into golf. So uh, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that people would be served well by spending a lot more time on that part of it.
1: Totally. And it's a double-edged sword too, because a lot of people retire and they don't have that sense of purpose. And then they get really interested, especially in their finances. And they start, like I know retirees who they look at their portfolio you know, all day because they just don't have a lot of other things keeping them busy. And that in a weird way, especially with finances is is almost really counterproductive in a lot of ways, because then you start you, know, you not only have all the uncertainty of of retirement and the, just the, the lack of income and you know, you're now living off of this nest egg, but you're now starting to think about that nest egg in a way that is somewhat counterproductive because you're starting to think about it in super, super short time horizons that often create sort of conflicts of interest inside of your own portfolio. Before we talk about your
2: portfolio, I just want to ask you about back real quick, because I've probably learned more from you on the macro side than maybe anyone else. And, you know, there seem to be different schools of thought on this idea of macro. Like some people think, you know, whether you're trying to predict anything in the macro world, you know, you need to keep that away from your portfolio. You shouldn't be doing anything with that. And other people think, you know, when we get in a time like we're in now, like a time of high inflation, you know, you need to be making changes here. You know, if if you think inflation is going to be above average, you need to be making changes to your portfolio. Like, how do you think about that connection between macro and how you build your portfolio?
1: Yeah, it's, it's hard. There's a lot of... I think, bad narratives about macro. I think a lot of people will look at macro investing and think that they're going to become like George Soros, like you're going to start trading foreign currency and make all this money in the short term. And to me, that's not really the value of understanding macro at all. The value of macro is understanding all these big picture concepts that actually teach you that doing things like that in the aggregate are usually detrimental. And so that's that's to me. That's always been the the biggest lesson in macro is understanding these top down, you know, positions that teach you really a, a foundational starting point for understanding how the world works. Like, I mean, when I talk about portfolio construction, I usually like to start with the global financial asset portfolio, which is essentially the it's the portfolio of all the world's outstanding assets. And if you were an efficient market theorist, this is the portfolio that you would always tell everybody to buy because that is technically the market portfolio. The market cap of all the outstanding stocks and bonds in the world is functionally the only you know, so-called efficient portfolio that exists. And that, as a, as a starting foundational point, that's a really, really good starting point to understand portfolio construction because it gives you a sense of, okay, this is the portfolio that in the long run, in the aggregate, none of us can outperform because by definition it is the market portfolio and understanding, you know, not only that asset allocation, but also things like, you know, the more we trade that portfolio, the more taxes and fees we churn up the, which means the lower our returns are. And so I think a lot of people get into macro investing, kind of thinking of that George Soros thing. And the real lesson of it is more of like a, or the real conclusion from it is actually more of like a Vanguard style approach. I think that, you know, if you like, I would argue that everything Vanguard or a lot of what Vanguard does is just top down macro investing. They're buying big, boring market cap weighted indices, you know, buy the, buy the haystack, forget the needle. You know, that's the, to me, indexing is like the ultimate uh, macro approach. And it, it's based on a lot of these just big picture foundational views of understanding you know, the cost matters hypothesis and the you know even the efficient market hypothesis in the sense that buy the market and just let it ride and make sure that your asset allocation is, you know, behaviorally robust and tax and fee efficient, diversified and, you know, set it and forget it in essence. So I think that's for me, that's the biggest thing about macro. And it's the thing that weirdly, I think a lot of people. I think, kind of confused, in the, especially when they read some of my work, because I'm not trying to teach you to be George Soros. I'm trying to teach you to be more like John Bogle, really. And I'm oftentimes communicating or using big macro explanations to really debunk or simplify a lot of this stuff in a way that people can implement portfolios that are really more, I think, macro-based, but also simple.
2: I guess I'm gonna have to shut down my foreign currency trading account now. <laughs> oh, I was hoping for I was hoping for big returns there. <laughs> I wanted to ask mm. you. You talked earlier about the importance of time frames and you know sort of setting these buckets for different time frames. How do you think about translating that now into the asset allocation part of it? How do you think about like setting your asset allocation based on your idea of, of those different time frames?
1: Yeah. So I we talked about this briefly before we got on here. And, you know, I wrote this paper called All Duration Investing last year. And the goal of that approach really was to build an understanding of asset allocation that really is very similar to the way that most fixed income investors think of things, especially the way that fixed income investors build bond ladders. Because the, the beauty, I think, of building something like a bond ladder or understanding bonds in a sort of really simplistic way is that you understand the time horizon of the instrument specifically. So for instance, when you buy a three-month treasury bill, you know, ex- you know all the information you need to know about that instrument. And the, the key aspect of that is actually that you know the time horizon. And I think this is the thing that makes investing so hard in general, that we, we don't know the time horizon of our liabilities going out really far. We also don't know what the time horizon of the stock market is. We don't even know what the time horizon of certain strategies are. And so, and especially once you start mixing a lot of assets together, you know, what is the time horizon of a 60, 40 portfolio? It's, this creates all this uncertainty that people have trouble navigating, holding these instruments in part because they just don't know what the time horizons of them are. And so the goal of my paper was really to assign time horizons to, specific asset classes. And so people can then compartmentalize these instruments in a very specific manner where they know, or at least have some sense of the general time horizon. So for instance, like the the stock market in my model is a 17-year instrument. A 60-40 portfolio is a 12-year instrument. The global financial asset portfolio is actually closer to like a nine or 10-year instrument. The aggregate bond market is like a five-year instrument. And so You can do this, you can assign these time horizons to every single asset class. You can even do this, interestingly, for like alternatives and things like that. Like, you know, thinking in terms of, it was interesting when I ran the model that a lot of instruments that actually look like insurance, they literally act the same exact way that insurance does. So for instance, like I own life insurance. I own a 20-year term life insurance policy that instrument is something that I know will generate a negative real return over the course of my life, assuming I I survive the full 20 years. But if I die at year 10, that thing is going to provide a huge asymmetric real return. And when I ran the model and plugged in a lot of different instruments, things like gold and managed futures and ultra long treasury bonds, they all exhibited those similar sort of characteristics where in very specific environments, they oftentimes created these weird, large asymmetric returns. So for instance, like managed futures typically do it when the stock market goes down a lot, or volatility is really high. Um, the the uh, situation with like treasury bonds is typically that during a deflation or really rapidly falling interest rates, long treasury bonds provide this sort of really big asymmetric insurance like hedge. And so, you know, you can, you can, Block out all these instruments, though, across specific time horizons to then begin to think of them in a proper asset allocation sense, where you're then matching the assets with specific liabilities and specific time horizons, really, to give you just more certainty across all of those time horizons. When you say like a set like stocks
0: are a 17-year asset, or you're putting a year on the, I guess, the time horizon or uh, time frame. How are you? What goes into it? So it's it's a volatility metric or something like that. And like just talk through that, the formula of what goes into that number, because it would yeah. help me like understand it.
1: Yeah. So I'm when I'm thinking about this, when I started working through this concept, I I was really researching, you know, based on like fixed income duration style thinking. And William Bernstein talks about duration as being really the point of indifference for an investor. And he was actually calculating the duration of the stock market. And he did it, I think he did it based on um, the dividend yield versus, you know, max drawdown, basically. And he came out to that stocks were, I can't remember exactly what the number was, something like 40 or 50 year instruments. I took the same general concept and basically did max drawdown versus expected real returns going forward. And using that sort of analysis, you can think of this in terms of like, if you bought the stock market today, and let's say the max drawdown is 50% and the expected real return of it is say 7%. Well, I think the math on that works out to roughly like 17 years. And that's kind of, that's your point of indifference, basically. That's the point where in real terms, you're indifferent to what this instrument, you know, how it performed. There's, of course, there's lots of opportunity costs and things like that. But In terms of just, you know, that break-even point, that's your point of indifference. And so that's how I sort of started thinking about and starting to quantify this concept of duration as it applies not just to the bond market, but also trying to apply it to other instruments. So then we can begin to think of, you know, not even just the stock market, but also like strategies. Like you can plug in, you can plug in a 60-40 to this. You can plug in a momentum fund into this and you can actually calculate what the, the the potential duration of that portfolio is just to give you, I think, a general time horizon for properly judging the way that this instrument might perform over long periods of time.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that plays into like the behavioral aspect about how you can look at this as an investor, how you can talk to investors about it, and how you can almost put a line in the sand about kind of like worst case scenario, what you have to endure to sort of have some type of break even
1: on that investment. Yeah, exactly. Because I would argue that so much of maybe all of investing is just it's it's a time time trick, really. Like you're just you're trying to navigate time, basically. And none of us none of us have absolute certainty over it. We don't know what our lifetimes, how long we're going to live. We don't know. We don't even know. A lot of us don't even know if we're going to have an income next year or, you know, how much and what's the asset value is going to be. And so So much of this is just navigating the uncertainty of time across different time horizons. And when you can at least begin to get a perspective of what your time horizons are, I think you create a lot of certainty inside of the, especially the behavioral navigation of a lot of this where you just feel more comfortable with what you're doing because you know the specific time horizons over which you're likely to have certain amounts of money.
2: So think about that with a real world example. If you were saving for your like your child's college education and let's say that's 14 years in the future, you would basically build a portfolio with a blended duration of around 14 years, you know, between stocks and bonds or whatever else you're investing in to try to meet that goal.
1: Yeah, you could you could even argue that 14 years is close enough to that 17-year time period where you could be 100% equities and then as you as you get closer to that time period, you should correspondingly reduce the time horizon so for instance if you're, if your kid is going to college next year and you've owned you know you've owned a five two nine for twenty years, let's say your kid's going to college next year, I would definitely argue that portfolio should not be one hundred percent equities because that's going to give you know it's going to create a huge amount of potential principal risk inside of the one year time period when you actually need that so you, you know that's a good situation for even something like a target date fund is probably like it provides the right type of glide path there where you can actually, you know, you're rebalancing the portfolio in a way where, and this is one of the big benefits of rebalancing is that rebalancing isn't just a behavioral tool, it's a duration control tool, is really what it is. Because what rebalancing does is it reduces the average duration of a portfolio in large part by reducing the amount of equity risk you have there. Because the The larger and larger the equity component in your portfolio gets, the longer the duration of your portfolio becomes by definition. And when you rebalance a portfolio, whether it's back to a fixed weight or if you're using a target dates fund glide path approach, you're actually reducing the duration of the portfolio in essence because you're just boosting the amount of bonds into the portfolio across time.
2: At a high level, what asset classes do you use in your portfolio? I mean, are you primarily just a stocks and bonds guy or do you do other stuff on the liquid side? we do
1: use other stuff. Sometimes I, I tend, I defer towards keep it simple. So I don't typically think that people need a lot more than stocks and bonds. Um, uh, people like having insurance. And I think that, you know, insurance is, is sort of a, an interesting topic for like traditional portfolio construction. Cause you know, what, how much insurance does do you need in a por- on a portfolio? Are bonds enough insurance? I, you know, typically I would say no, but I think the key to that actually is understanding that insurance provides you with very short-term, real uh, consumption predictions that are high probability, and what that means basically is that if cash, for instance, is generating a real return, I would argue that cash is actually probably one of the best insurance instruments you can own. So I, for instance, in this environment, I would argue that cash, you know, buying short-term T-bills that are yielding five and a half percent, they're generating a real return now. They're giving you all the insurance in your portfolio that you probably need over the short term, essentially. And, so, you know, you can layer in other types of insurance, but I would argue that the, the strongest argument for these alternative types of insurance in a portfolio are probably environments where cash just is an insufficient insurance instrument. So, for instance, I think the period from, you know, basically the, the zero interest rate environment that forced people into other instruments because cash was an insufficient uh, return-generating instrument that didn't provide you with really any insurance. And so I think that the, in that sort of an environment, you can get forced into owning other instruments that are better insurance hedges. But in an environment like this where cash is generating a real return, um, I would argue that cash is probably the best type of insurance that you can build around a, a stock and bond allocation.
2: How do you think about your bond allocation? I mean, are you pretty much do you use index funds, broad bond market index funds or do you think about targeting it to certain areas of the bond market? How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I like to target certain instruments and I I I mean, especially in this environment, you know, we we're, we're using the word bonds a little loosely. It's it's all fixed income to me, all the all the bond-like instruments in that part of the world and so in today's specific environment, like T-bills, I mean, I I hate when I see that people own like a money market fund even or CDs or, you know, leaving money in the bank is the absolute worst because what are T-bills? T-bills are functionally, when you go out and buy individual T-bills, you're going out and buying what is essentially a customized money market fund. There's no extra fees on that thing. It's actually generally more tax efficient than a money market fund is or a CD. And you're probably generating a better total return from it. Because the yield on a T-bill is almost always higher than the return on a, a money market fund or even a, you know a CD in most cases, high yield savings accounts. You know, I always laugh at these high yield savings accounts advertisements that I see because they'll they'll say like, oh, the you know, the the so and so high yield savings account now yields four and a half percent. And I think to myself, well, treasury bills yield five and a half percent. Like you're functionally paying a one percent fee to hmm. own this high yield instrument. And so, you know, in that sense, I I like to go in and actually buy, be more hands-on. I'm very, almost counterintuitively, I'm very hyperactive with my cash, very hands-on, always rolling it over, you know, active in a way that most people think that cash probably isn't active. And I'm very sort of hands-off with my longer duration stuff. So the, you know, I'm very hands-off with the equity stuff, but very hands-on with the bonds. And so... You, know, in terms of broader bond allocation, I think you, you're probably fine owning. I mean, I think of bonds as really they're state they're principal stabilizers in a portfolio. I think some people like to think of bonds as real return inflation protection instruments, and I just I don't like that mentality at all. I think that bonds are really they should be owned to create principal stability across very specific time horizons, and if you own. The right type of bonds, typically government bonds, or even a very diversified portfolio of bonds, you can establish a a very high degree of principal stability across specific time horizons. And you know that I typically don't love buying like a bond aggregate or or an overly diversified bond portfolio because, especially, the more you layer in corporate bonds and foreign bonds, especially you actually can create a lot more instability in that portfolio than is necessary. And especially the longer out you get on the, on the, you know, the yield curve, you, you can create a lot of, of, of principal stability inside of that portfolio. And so you have to, I think, keep things closer to probably high quality and shorter duration, but inside of time periods where you can create a pretty high level of predictability.
2: How about equity? Since you're hands off, I mean, are you primarily an index fund type guy? Do you use factors, you use active strategies? You know, what do you do there?
1: Yeah, it, it is. So I, I think of all the equity components as longer duration. And then inside of that, I mean, we are, I'm relatively agnostic to what the way people do this, as long as they're doing it in a way that is relatively tax and fee efficient and diversified. Um, you know, the 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 main my my i guess my main gripe with some of the factor investing approaches over the years is that i would argue it's very hard to time when you should own certain factors and so the the very simple answer to solving that problem is that you just own all the factors and the way to do that is to just own like a market cap weighted fund rather than trying to pick the component of the market that is going to perform the best but at the same time i I also know there's strong empirical evidence for owning factors. And so, you know, I'm, I mean, at heart, I'm probably a value investor, just that for me, psychologically and behaviorally, that's my comfort zone. And, you know, it's been, being a pure value investor has been a pain train for a long time, which is, again, that, that's the argument against a, a, a purely concentrated value approach. But I don't, I I have nothing against factor tilting where if you have a, you know, if you have a position in like SPY as sort of a core equity holding, and then you own, you know, some foreign small cap or, you know, whatever it might be the, you know, a momentum fund that's a domestic, you know, momentum fund, whatever it might be, there's strong empirical evidence for all of these things. And so, you know, you can get brain damage trying to overcomplicate or, you know, pick the right components. But also, I don't think there's a lot of harm in in trying to factor tilt to generate a little bit of an extra return premium.
2: So at your core, are you pretty much an index based use an index based approach?
1: Yeah, as a baseline, I would argue most investors should just start with a a boring, ultra diversified market cap weighted approach. And if you want to tilt or add some factors, either for behavioral purposes or or heck, just, you know, taking a flyer on, you know, hey, I want to try to generate a little better return from this thing that, um, you know, has some pretty solid empirical evidence to support it. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, in my view. Would you
2: ever adjust your equity exposure based on valuation? Like, I remember Favor did this thought experiment on Twitter where he started with, I think, the, I think the cape was like 45 in 2000, was the peak cape of the S&P. And he just kept raising the number and, and was mm-hmm. saying to people, would you reduce your equity exposure if it was 100, like Japan? You know, would you do anything like that? Would you ever consider valuation or is that completely outside of what you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would argue that valuations ultimately, you know, there's a million different ways to calculate valuations. But from a really sort of baseline perspective, I think going back to like the global financial asset portfolio, you know, what typically happens in that portfolio is that that portfolio is usually like 45, 55 stocks, bonds, or at least it has been for the last like five, six years or so. And what typically happens inside of that portfolio is the bond piece grows, or sorry, the stock piece outperforms the bond piece and grows disproportionately. And what typically happens over time is if you actually recalculate this, it typically recalculates back to about 45, 55. But if you owned, and that's mainly because the bond market is just much larger in terms of issuance. There's a lot more new issuance coming out in the bond market that kind of offsets a lot of the growth. So they never get too disproportionate away from each other but there are periods where you know especially if you don't rebalance back to this sort of market cap weighted calculation if you just buy a 45 55 and you let it ride your stock component is going to start to outperform because the valuations of equities are growing for whatever reason um and typically that needs to be rebalanced back to offset some of the outsized risk that you then have in the equity component because you get this you know this sort of multiplier effect where 45% stocks grows into say 60% stocks and inside of that portfolio especially from a volatility perspective you don't really own 60% stocks from a volatility you know contribution perspective you really own something closer to like 85% stocks cuz 85% of the volatility in that portfolio is being contributed by the stock component. And so, you know, as valuations typically grow and deviate from, you know, create these deviations relative to the bond market, I think you, it makes a lot of sense to rebalance in large part because you're, you're again, you're offsetting that added duration risk that comes from the growing equity piece of the portfolio. And valuations are, you know, it's hard to quantify, but from a simple market cap weighted valuation perspective, you typically want to rebalance because the, the stock market in terms of value is just growing much more rapidly on average than the bond market is.
2: Do you own international stocks? You know, that's been kind of a subject of debate, especially with international stocks doing so poorly against U.S. Stock for de- stocks for decades now. You, know, you have the Jack Bogle type view that you get everything you need in the U.S., you don't really need any international stocks. And then you've got the people in my world that look at all, look at all the data and say, you're actually getting a lot of benefit from international stocks. Like, how, do, how do you think about that? Do you own international stocks?
1: Yeah, I fall into your camp on this. It's one of, the, one of the few things I think that Bogle got really wrong across his life was that, yes, there is a large contribution, especially from a revenue perspective, if you just own something like the S&P 500. But the real, I'd argue the real benefit of owning international stocks is that, well, you're not only reducing your domestic stock exposure risk, you're you're also giving yourself a currency hedge. And that's one of the biggest, I think, contributing positives of owning international stocks is that you're really dampening the effect of the potential currency risk that you have in your domestic equity portfolio by owning some of these foreign entities. And so, you know, is it necessary? And, you know, what's the right size? You know, that's a much trickier debate. But I would argue that from a basic, you know, position of sort of reducing home bias and reducing currency risk you you should own everyone i think should own some international stocks just to avoid that that position i mean you can look at there's a lot of historical evidence to support you know these arguments against home bias i mean the classic one is looking at you know like the japanese stock market in the in the early 1990s really though that whole 20 year period that the <clears throat> japanese equity investor who owned say US stocks you know diversified massively outside of the topics or the you know the any of the the large you know Japanese indices they insulated themselves from a lot of domestic risk and yeah you know I think it's easy to look at the United States and say oh well our economy's so big and so strong like we're not going to turn into Japan or we're not going to turn into You know, we're not a failing empire like the UK was back in the early 1900s, like, you know, or the early 1800s, whatever it was, you know, but I think that's really, that's like poor risk management in essence, in the sense that we, especially coming out of COVID, I think one of the big lessons from COVID is anything can happen. I mean, (laughs) nobody predicted global pandemic that was going to like shut down the global economy for a year. And you just never know what's going to happen. And I think that diversification is essentially, you know, the process of, of, of spreading risk around and having a lot of home bias results in a lot of, of domestic equity and domestic currency risk that can easily be hedged away.
2: Yeah, this is one of the biggest challenges like working with clients, but also maybe in managing our own portfolios is this idea that there can be things that make complete empirical sense that work over the long term and they cannot work for 20, 30 years. And so it's so hard for a person, for a client or for you yourself to look at it and say, wait, this hasn't worked for literally 20 or 30 years, but it still makes complete sense. You know, even I struggle with that at times, so I can understand how that's difficult. But, you know, you're right. The case for international stocks is very strong.
1: It's the hardest part of diversification, really. I think Brian Portnoy was the one who said that, you know, um, diversification is learning to hate some part of your portfolio all the (laughs) time. And that's so true. But at the same time. Looking at those parts of your portfolio that you hate is it's a behavioral mind trip because especially when those parts of the portfolio will underperform for several years, you then start getting into that mentality of I've got to fix this. This part of my portfolio is broken. But actually the reason diversification works is because some part of your portfolio looks broken in the short term. Always. I mean, if all of your portfolio is looks like it's doing all the same stuff. It's all performing just, you know, in a a nice linear, you know, line all the time. Something's wrong or you're invested with Bernie Madoff. Just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin.
2: I want to ask you about uh, illiquid stuff. Do you do anything in the startup space, you know, venture capital, uh, private equity, angel investing? You do anything like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, my... My personal situation is strange because my company is essentially like I think of my company as a startup. My company is essentially a private equity position. It's the largest allocation I have in my portfolio. And I, you know, I think that that's that's really important in terms of the broader way that I think of asset allocation, because I specifically, especially, again, coming from sort of a macroeconomics background. One of the things you learn in macroecon is that. The word investing has a very specific meaning in economics. It essentially means to spend for future production. And when you buy stocks and bonds, you're not actually spending for future production. You're allocating your savings. When you actually, the investments that most of us do are in ourselves. They're in our skill sets. For me, it is building a skill set and building tools that I can help people that ultimately will accrue value to my my company basically and that's where i make my core real investments i i try not to you know i it's hard to say everything is savings i like to call literal portfolios we traditionally call these investment portfolios i try to call them savings portfolios just to communicate this concept but at the same time i know most people think of investing as buying stocks and bonds so i have to speak the language we have not the the language that i want but I, I think it's a really useful distinction because it compartmentalizes the the things we can can control versus the things we can't, and you can control the value and the skill set that you produce over time. so you know investing in yourself is like it's essentially like being the horse trainer and the horse and the jockey. You control a lot of the outcome there, whereas buying stocks and bonds is more like being the gambler at the track. You don't have any control over the outcome of what those instruments do. You might be able to predict them to some degree, but you don't actually dictate the control. And that's the difference between allocating your savings versus investing in things like yourself. And so you, know, in terms of how this, I think of this in terms of like venture capital and other things that you know are sort of more alternative investments, I think of venture capital, is or even most private equity is really it is super long duration equity type investing so I mean venture capital typically means you're buying a very very young entity um so you know you're not buying a public market equity by any means you're buying something that is much younger has potentially a much longer time horizon a much higher return potential but also has a very very high failure rate and so that thing in terms of its duration is a super, super long duration instrument in a proper perspective. I mean, you, if you buy, if you invest in a venture capital company uh, or uh, investment, your hope really is that you're buying something very young that's going to grow very old over a multi-multi-decade period, hopefully. And so you know, I would compartmentalize VC and a lot of private equity stuff in, in the equity bucket, but as an even longer, higher risk part of that. And so for me, because that's so much higher risk, it's probably only one percent of my actual personal portfolio. Um, whereas, you know, my my personal investments in my company are, you know, they're by far the largest allocation that I have inside of my personal portfolio. I don't know what that is worth. You know, some people might worth it. It's, argue it's worth zero. Um, <laughs> I would argue it's worth millions of dollars. Um, <laughs> but you, you you don't really know. And uh, but in any sense, in any you know, sense. I mean, even thinking of like, I like to think of my income as a as a fixed income component, actually, where, you know, I'm earning a fixed income based on the flows from this asset value that I have that are sort of unknown. But you can at least look at the flows from the from the income stream and say, OK, hey, I I kind of know at least what the valuation of this thing is. And so that's my by far my biggest investment is my investment in my my own personal sort of private equity or fixed income like, Component of my portfolio. On the net worth
0: spreadsheet, you're like value of firm. Okay, I'm gonna add three more zeros to that. <laughs> three more zeros to the back end of that yeah, one. <laughs> that's the Bernie. Um, that's the Bernie Madoff approach, right? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I just fill in the spreadsheet. Um, but uh, all right, that's cool. I'm curious. When did you ever do anything with crypto? Get involved in crypto? Did you ever sort of explore it? And maybe. Uh, just to tack onto that, like, you know, when new assets like that and new potential opportunities come onto the horizon, would you say you're an early adopter, a a late adopter, like a skeptic and stuff like that? Like, how do you sort of view those types of things?
1: These are hard. I think they're really hard, especially for financial advisors who have a fiduciary responsibility to people to not expose them to Really crazy asymmetric risks, especially unregulated risks. And I think that's been the hardest part for a lot of financial advisors over the last 10, 15 years, with, especially with crypto, is that the unregulated aspect of it creates, a, it creates so much risk that I think a lot of financial advisors haven't felt comfortable with it. My, the approach I have to owning crypto and really, I mean, when I say crypto, it's basically just Bitcoin for me personally. I think of Bitcoin as a really like the the longest possible duration instrument that is basically a fiat currency insurance hedge. And that's, I think that's the dominant use case for Bitcoin. And that argument is, I would say, not that great for the dollar for the world's reserve currency, I would argue it's a very, very, very powerful argument. If you live in any sort of third world country, um, where the foreign or where the currency risk is just enormous. And so, you know, inside of that perspective, you know, again, it's operating like this super long duration insurance instrument. That means to me that it's not a core portfolio holding. It is, it's, it's a satellite, basically. It's an insurance satellite around it. And again, it's probably, I own some Bitcoin. It's less than 1% of my total net worth, probably. Um, but I've dabbled in, you know, I think it's important to, to learn about this stuff. So I've dabbled in a lot of cryptocurrencies and I've, you know, lost some money and done some stupid things. I actually, I think I, I owned Bitcoin at like $1,000 probably 10 years ago. And I think I sold it at like $900, <laughs> So, and then I bought it back at like, I don't know, $25,000 or something and wrote it up to 60,000 and then back down to wherever we are now. Um, so I haven't made a lot of money with Bitcoin or anything, but you know, at the same time, I've learned a lot by investing in it. I mean, I think that that's one of the benefits of of actually being in the trenches investing in this stuff is that. It teaches you how a lot of this stuff works when you actually see mm-hmm. the market function. And so, you know, with new sort of paradigms like this, I think that it's useful to to at least dabble in it. So you kind of begin to get a grasp of, of how these things operate, what's your comfort level with it. Because especially with Bitcoin, I mean, talking about a hyper, hyper volatile instrument. So, but in terms of, you know, the way that I like to compartmentalize it, I do think it's best thought of as, as a satellite sort of insurance instrument that is potentially a hedge against uh, the demise of fiat currency or even you could even argue it's just an inflation hedge, really, that, um, you know, it should perform well over longer term periods when inflation is high or even moderately high. And that gives you another sort of asymmetric hedge. But, you know, is it a, do I think of it in terms of an essential piece of a portfolio No. And I think that that's also consistent with the, you know, if you go back to the global financial asset portfolio, you know, the whole crypto market is less than 1% of all the world's outstanding financial assets. And so even going from that baseline perspective, it's an extremely small market relative, especially to the amount of bandwidth that it gets in the media. This is a very, very small asset class. You could, you could argue it's going to become a much bigger one. And that's, you know, an argument in favor of holding it potentially, but you know, working from a purely sort of market cap weighted perspective, the argument for owning it, whether it's insurance or, or just a market cap al- asset allocation inside of your portfolio, the argument for owning a huge amount of it I don't think is that strong, especially if you're an investor inside of the United States where the reserve currency dominance is just sort of unquestionable at this point. And unquestionable, I think, going forward for a very long time here.
0: Yeah. You know, we talk about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin a lot, or at least we were talking more about it when it was at 60,000, but you know, it's still a relatively very young asset class. I mean, Bitcoin only came onto the scene in 2009. So, you know, you're talking 14 years of the asset class existing. And even though if you look at the returns, they're ridiculous, but it's still like, it's still so young relative to many
1: of the other asset classes that we have. Yeah. And that's one of the strong arguments, I think, for owning at least a a piece of it is that, you know, if this thing is like when I plug it into my alteration model, Bitcoin comes out to like a hundred year instrument. So, you know, working from that perspective, I mean, you can build a, a really strong argument that over a 100 year time period, this thing is potentially going to be a really, really high re- real return generating type of instrument. Um, but at the same time, most of us don't have a hundred years. And that thing is so volatile that it will create so much turbulence inside of your portfolio in the short term that I think by definition, you need offsets. You need large offsets for it in the, in the rest of your portfolio. You almost need to diversify with lots of these other boring things because Bitcoin is, is like too exciting, both on the upside and the downside.
0: I think the first interview we did with you, um, you had just got back from Home Depot and you had bought like lumber or something and it was like quadruple what you thought it was, what, what it was like six months before that. And we were, we were talking about how expensive the project was, but you know, that, that relates to sort of the house. I mean, you've, you know, you seem to do, be pretty handy and do work on your house or have done work on your house, but how do you think about your home in the context of your portfolio? Do you view it as, clearly it's an asset I'm guessing you have a mortgage on it right now, so you're you're paying that mortgage off. But do you view it as like, okay, I'm paying the mortgage and it's not really part of my net worth. It's like, I'm going to pay to live here because I have a mortgage and there's expenses or that I'm going to have this big asset 20 years or 30 years down the road that's going to be paid off and that's going to be part of maybe my retirement.
1: How do you view that? Yeah, i I do not like the idea of thinking of a house as an investment, just... In large part, because especially after, you know, so we got my process of buying my, you know, our primary residence was, I mean, we went through the ringer with all this. We, I wanted to buy a house in 2012 that we ultimately were too timid to buy. And then, you know, probably four years later, we went in and bought a similar house that cost 50% as much. And we ended up having, to knock the whole thing down basically when we remodeled it. Cause we, once we got into it, like this was the first home I'd ever bought. And we really, I really had no idea what I was getting myself into when it's funny. Cause before that I'd written a book, you know, my book, Pragmatic Capitalism. And in a, in that book, I'd written an entire chapter about a house is a bad investment. Like your real, real return after you calculate for all the taxes and the fees and the maintenance, you will not make money on that thing. Or at least you won't make a really high return like a lot of people think. Like I think a lot of people buy a house, they remember the purchase number and they remember the sale number and they say, mm. "Oh, I bought this house in 1965 for $50,000 and then I sold it in 2020 for, you know, $400,000." And it's like, "Well, how many times did, you know, XYZ break in the house? You know, what were your taxes and fees along the way?" No, that's the thing is that a house is an it's an asset that yes it it will very likely generate high real returns over the long term but when you back out the taxes and the fees and the maintenance a home is a is an asset with an incredibly high expense ratio and that's especially true if you actually go in and you calculate like the time involved in maintaining a lot of uh, you know the things with a home that you you don't have to do if you're renting and so homes are just really expensive. I think that it's best to think of a house as a it's a long duration instrument inside of my model that will generate very low real returns over, you know, an after-tax, after-fee basis. But at the same time, it is a long duration instrument in the sense that if you own that thing and you hold, you buy and hold it, the likelihood of you losing money on it is very very low. So you know, when it comes down to like the buy, whole buy rent situation, I think that a lot of that depends on time horizon, in my view. Like if you're if you're going to buy a house and you're going to stay in it for more than 10 years, the likelihood of you losing money, even if you're buying that house in 2006, um, you know, at the very, very peak of prices, the odds of losing money over a rolling 10-year period, they're very, very low. And so you know again looking at this across time horizons i think that you can get yourself into trouble if you're thinking about this as a short term money making investment whereas you know if you're thinking of this more as like a just a place to live a place to raise your family a place to be comfortable a place to sort of build a foundation for actually making other investments like you know i work from home a lot so you know i could argue that my home has been a great investment in the sense that you know, it's allowed me to focus on other stuff in this very sort of organized manner. Um, but from a financial perspective, I don't love the idea of thinking of a house as like a money-making asset. You know, that, that's very different. If you're if you're somebody who's a professional, say, builder or even a professional landlord, that whole, you know, you're running a corporation that's providing value for people, that, that whole situation is probably different. But in terms of just being a, you know, a a primary residence, um, I don't think people should think of the home as someplace where they're going to make a lot of money. That is not your, it's not your retirement plan.
0: You had mentioned that, you know, after you had kids, it kind of changed your perspective on sort of your personal portfolio, spending, you know, habits, priorities. But um, what is your sort of strategy or, I guess, view or philosophy on, you know, what you do save for your kids? Like, for instance, do you have a goal of like, trying to save enough to put them through college, or maybe mostly through college? Or do you ha- maybe have custodial accounts for them? Um, and, you know, in terms of thinking, like, in terms of generational wealth, you know, do you think about leaving, you know, something to your kids, or hope, hopefully, you know, leaving something to your kids? Is that's even something you want to do? I'm just curious about your yeah. perspective on that.
1: You know, I like the Warren Buffett line where he said that he wants to leave his kids enough to do something, but not enough to do nothing. And and I think that's how probably most parents feel about raising their kids in general, is that you you want to give them things that they need that will help them navigate, you know, their own consumption and investments over life. But at the same time, you don't want to give them so much that you know, they fail to develop the the skills and the tools that are necessary to just navigate everyday life. And so, you know, my parents, um, my dad was a Marine and a DC cop. So he was really tough with us in terms of like establishing a work ethic. But my parents also, like they paid for our education and and that was about it. I mean, in terms of like what they gave us and I don't mm. expect to get an inheritance from my parents or anything like that. They They provided me with, the, what I think is the ultimate edu- or the ultimate investment that a parent can provide for their children, which is just an education. And so my goal is to do something similar where I do want to, I, I would love to pay for my children's education and provide them with that, you know, fund that investment in their skills. Cause I know that they can't fund that investment themselves in all likelihood. And so me being able to do that for them, I think will create sort of that foundational starting point where they can then you know, go off into the world and start to, you know, develop their own skill sets and start investing in themselves in a way where they at least have a a starting point to, you know, to start to do something with their lives rather than, you know, just giving them everything so that they can do nothing. And so, yeah, I mean, I ultimately I'd love to be able to leave my children with with enough to to do that something but not to the point where they're just going to become like spoiled brats and do nothing for, you know, their whole lives. So I would, you know, in in terms of like breaking that down, you know, know, it's hard to figure out what is the, and this is sort of the, you know, the mind F of like trying to navigate these multi-generational time periods is like, what's the world going to look like when my two-year-old daughter is 40? you know, I have no idea. And so there is this, I am in this weirdly like hyper productive mode of my life right now, where I do actually want to try to optimize my own income and my own assets, just so that I can help my children potentially navigate all the uncertainty of what the world is going to look like over the course of the next 40 years without just giving them, you know, the Mm. world on a, you know, on a silver platter.
2: As we get to the end of these, we always like to ask a question that gets us this idea that not everything we invest our money in, you know, is for financial gain. And I always give the example, like I have a racing sailboat, which is a pretty atrocious investment from a financial standpoint. Um, it's got to be kept up. You know, there's always things breaking, but I get a lot of joy out of it. I go out with my, my friends on Wednesday night and we have a couple beers and we race around some buoys and like, it, it's a lot of fun for me. I'm just wondering if there's anything like that in your life, any anything that may not be the greatest financial investment, but that you find like a
1: lot of value in. Yeah, I did the boat thing. I, uh, <laughs> Oh, you did. I left it in, left it in the parliament? water. I left it in the water. It was, uh, it was a center console fisher boat. It was awesome. And, uh, I got really good at deep sea fishing. And then, uh, one, uh, one day after winter, I went down there and I, I turned on the engine. I pushed off and I started turning the steering wheel and the, uh, the steering column wire had, I don't know if it had frozen or what had happened over the course of winter, but it broke it broke as soon as i started turning the wheel and i'm solo and i had to jump out of the water this is a 21 foot you know center console fisher it was a you know deep hole boat this thing weighed a ton and i had to jump out of the water and push the boat to shore swimming um and uh i got home and had a guy replace it and i put it on for sale the next day
2: That's the one advantage we do have with those of us that have sailboats is we do have another option if the engine fails. So we at least have <laughs> yeah. a way to get in.
1: Yeah, so that was my adventure with with boats. But, um, I mean, there's lots of things that are so subjective. Like, for me, um, like, I waste a ton of time. I mean, I own chickens, and I waste a ton of time now gardening. And I'm like, like, I'm growing pumpkins right now for Halloween, and I've grown them from seed, and i you know, I I sit there and, like, watch these things grow, basically, and I'm watering them and fertilizing and spend so much time, you know, in the garden or just like, you know, maintaining, you know, my chickens and yard that I kind of know, like, it's all financially counterproductive. You know, I'm not gonna, it would be so much easier for me to just wait until October and then go buy a $5 pumpkin rather than every day watering these things. And, you know, helping manicure them and grow them. Like it's a stupid, a stupid, stupid return on investment. But at the same time, like I just love the process of doing it. There's something super rewarding to me about getting my hands dirty and, you know, learning how these things actually grow and taking care of them. And, you know, there's a certain amount of responsibility, especially with animals. I mean, farm animals, especially like they're you know, they're totally helpless on their own. And so there's a responsibility there and just an upkeep that is sort of rewarding in the sense that I'm, you know, I'm getting eggs ultimately that would be probably a better investment just buying them at the store. But I don't know, I enjoy this sort of subjective feeling of the reward of getting, you know, the return on investment from these things that, uh, that I know financially are totally counterproductive. But chickens and, uh, chickens and plants are a lot less expensive than mm-hmm. both.
2: It's so. funny, like I, I never understood my dad. Like when he was, he would get so much joy when I was a kid, like being out in the yard and getting everything perfect. And then, like, now it shows how old I am now. Like, now I love it. Like, <laughs> now I've totally flipped the other way. Like, when I've got my yard huh. perfect and stuff, it's like, it's like this feeling you can't
1: describe. I think half of it is that it's just a really, really good excuse to get away and get alone for like 30 minutes. And you just have total peace and quiet to just let your brain wander about whatever it is that's going on in the world without like having anybody else distract you or scream in your ear. And you could argue that's the be- the best return on investment <laughs> you can get in this world. Peace and
0: quiet. Peace and quiet. So this has been great, Colin. We just like to ask all of our guests sort of one last question, which is if you could impart one lesson that you've learned in building your portfolio to the average investor, what would that be?
1: I think it goes back to that concept of really properly structuring your savings versus your investing. And that was one of my big aha moments was that I used to spend so much time obsessing over stock picking and building my portfolio in just the perfect way where I was doing just hours and hours of research every day on instruments and entities. And once I sort of had this aha moment about, well, my real investments are in myself and the things that I can control and my own really spending for for future production rather than, you know, obsessing over things that really are controlled by the market and whatnot. That freed me up to really, I think, think of these things in a very proper time horizon and a, a more holistic sense where I was then thinking of my income and my personal investments are really the core. They're the key aspect of financial success. And then the savings that I generate from that income and allocate into a diversified you know, financial plan and asset allocation, it's all sort of secondary. And I think a lot of people, I think, think of these things backwards, where they think of the stock market as someplace where they get rich. And really, the place where you're going to get rich is investing in yourself, and your own future output, and your own future production, so that then you can generate,, you know, optimize your income in a way where then you have the flexibility to protect what you've made by then diversifying it across all of these sort of secondary markets like stocks and bonds and all the other instruments we talked about today.
0: Colin, thanks so much. You're always game for, for coming on with us. We really appreciate it. I know our audience does too, so Thanks. Have a good uh, end of your summer, and we look to see you again soon. Thanks, man. Thank you, guys. I love the show. So keep it up. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarbonell. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin
1: Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Olivia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Olivia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Lydia Capital.